0: Hello, and welcome to Horror Origins. My name, of course, is Matthew Tancic, and over the course of this podcast, we're going to be delving into horror firsts, dissecting their genesis, and learning a bit more about the history of the cultural world that has sprung up around us. This is episode 11. We're going to be taking a look at the first story considered to be part of the Cthulhu mythos. Of course, it's H.P. Lovecraft's The Nameless City. But before we dive into it, let's break things down so we know what we're getting ourselves into. We're first going to be taking a look at the author that created the idea, the climate that the concept was born into, the story that introduced it, and then finally the legacy that it's had since its inception. Better get those lanterns behind some cover and secure the camels. Looks like there's another sandstorm coming tonight, and we would better get going. So, the author. Well, the author that created this famous fictional text is none other than the pulp fiction powerhouse that was Howard Phillips Lovecraft, the man Stephen King referred to as the 20th century's greatest practitioner of the classic horror tale. He was an American author, born in Providence, Rhode Island, and unlike many of the other authors we have talked about here on the show, Lovecraft's imagination and gifted writing skills led him to create some of the most recognizable pulp horror concepts in today's literature. <laughs> the, the, not the, the least of which on this literature landscape is the great tentacle-headed Cthulhu, uh, a god-like deity whose name and cult often pop up throughout his work um, and many other authors' work since his in today's uh, sort of emulated stories. Despite this, however, uh, all of his came all of his fame came posthumously, and Lovecraft never found commercial success being an author or an editor, and he eventually died in poverty at the age of 46. I often like to imagine what a dead author's reaction would be to the way the world regards their work uh, in today, you know, nowadays. What it would be like to show Tolkien what cinema has done to his novels, or here, how, um, you know, to show Lovecraft just how beloved his little stories have become and how much creativity they have sparked uh, all over the place, and how much it's inspired and been emulated and, and all of that, because I don't think he had any idea what, what, you know, entertainment and value people have put in his work over the years. Lovecraft himself was a prolific letter writer and a man who loved history and his New England heritage. He was a self-described antiquarian, um, and his passion for the ancient and the forgotten often came out in his works. And while this story only lays the groundwork for the world building that was to come, uh, he would eventually create a whole host of fictitious New England towns um, and events for his protagonist to ven- and uh, places for his protagonist to venture through, places like, uh, of course, the mist soaked Kingsport, the creaking half deserted Innsmouth, and the often utilized occult library of the Miskatonic University. And let's not forget the, the shuttered windows in the gambrel-roofed city of Arkham, just to name a few. Any description of Lovecraft also, I think, um, should include the caveat that he was also a pretty racist man, holding many bigoted and wrongheaded views about minorities, and as someone who has read the entirety of Lovecraft's works, I can tell you that it sometimes comes into play, but not in every story. And when it rears its ugly head, I try to just acknowledge it for what it is and hope that it doesn't form the basis for the plot of the tale. And I skip any works that fail on that account, from Lovecraft or anybody else for that matter. You know, when you tackle historical fiction like this, if the racism is, is just sort of surface level in it, sometimes I try to shake it off. But if it forms part of the plot, then I'll just stop and throw it out. For many people, uh, myself included, the man's racism um, doesn't ruin my enjoyment of some of his truly fun and conceptual ideas, but, uh, you know, make up your own mind. For this story, the racist doesn't register very much at all, um, for what it's worth. Uh, at the time in his life when he wrote this, uh, which was in the 1920s, Lovecraft was on the rise, becoming more involved in the writing world, uh, attending journalism conferences, and forming relationships with other weird fiction authors, and and falling in love, I suppose, with his future wife, Sonia Green, um, a marriage that sadly would prove to be short-lived. All right, so let's take a look at the climate of the world. Well, in the preceding year that this story was written, um, we have a booming population in this country. Uh, It's reaching 100 million for the first time. We have the cooling down and eventually uh, official ending to World War One with the Treaty of Versailles. And we have women um, striving for and finally obtaining the right to vote. Okay. And then the year that this was written in, um, we have this sort of backlash. The fear of immigrants um, leads to a national limit on immigration. And uh, there's a lot of strain being put on what I think would probably be considered like the the, the historical or the the way the, the the status quo of society you know so looking at this story through the lens of the past um, we can see that 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 growing national that crisis of national identity um, with immigrants and women now playing a much larger role uh, the war has ended and a major industry and way of life um, is is changing with the with this ending of World War one I. and I, I think that the the this whole thing is sort of stressing out the crusty old white male way of doing things. And I th- certainly think um, that that would have included Lovecraft. His views would have been very much against these changes. And so what I think this story plays on, like many of Lovecraft's tales, is a growing fear of personal identity or the loss of a perceived personal identity mixed with the insertion of a much deeper and wider view of humanity's place in the world. You may have heard the term cosmic horror associated with Lovecraft, and this comes from the character's shift in scope. So, in a climate where everyone is finally getting relief from a terrible war, this story comes in and tells the reader, no, 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 there are far greater things at play than anything, even as something pervasive as war, and you should still really be concerned. So... Uh, Without further ado, let's take a quick walk through the story. All right, so the Nameless City begins with our narrator, um, who's unnamed, looking out at, across this desert landscape, towards these ruins, which are known as the Nameless City by the locals. It's a collection of old, crumbling, wind-worn stones and they're much older than any other ruins around the area to compare it to. And it's shunned by anyone in the area. And right out the gate, we get the famous couplet by Abdul Alhazred, um, who, is f- who is famous within Lovecraft's mythos as being the author of the infamous tome, The Necronomicon. Um, which is, you know, that which is not dead, and it can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even death may die. Um, well, our narrator blows off the warnings. He's, he's not concerned with the old uh, Arabs' sayings um, and the sort of foreboding atmosphere. And, you know, it's such a horror trope to ignore the warnings of the locals that it's almost humorous the number of times it comes up in this sort of work. But he does. And he heads out into the desert... Uh, eventually finding his way to the ruins uh, by nightfall. And he waits until dawn before venturing into the ruins themselves. He's quite sure that because of the fear that this place has, that he might be the only living man in recent times to explore it. He's brought all sorts of tools with him and excavating equipment. And so the next morning he starts venturing into the ruins poking around and, and sort of digging at things as he goes to try to discover what he can about this place. Uh, each night, um, he has to go back to his camp outside of the ruins and um, and sort of bunker down because there's this weird stand sandstorm that keeps being whipped up each night. He mentions another uh, ancient city called Sarnath. He mentions Sarnath, Chaldea, and Ib, uh, some of which are real places, some which are fictitious places. It's very characteristic of Lovecraft to blend the two so that you sort of give credence or give validity to his um, made-up stuff just as much as you would to the real stuff that he interweaves, so it all sounds credible. Sarnath, as an aside, um, was born out of another short story that he wrote called The Doom that Came to Sarnath, and uh, uh, is sort of an interesting uh, way of sort of building the depth of his mythos into the story. Is that he throws like this milestone way deep in time first and then his subsequent stories can then reference that as he moves along anyway he uh he spends another night outside the temple or outside the ruins and um he he sees uh, a set of another set of temples built into the side of a cliff in the distance and he thinks that they must be some sort of holy place they seem different than the other ruins that he's nearby to so he heads over that direction makes a new camp and um clears the entryway with his tools and begins exploring. And right out the gate, he starts talking about how strange the dimensions are inside, how everything seems small and low, and he has to stoop and hunch and crawl through these spaces. And initially, he he attributes it to what he thinks must be the proportions of the original builders. These must have been very short people that built this. So, you know, this explains why their ceiling is so low, etc., uh, he continues exploring, and um, he once he's inside, he really can't see the sun. He's relying on his own light sources, and so he just works uh, like a obsessed madman, just kind of plowing his way through, excavating things and recording all that he can. Occasionally, he does get the idea that the, the sandstorm is going on. He just sort of continues on, paying it no mind. Once he finishes with exploring, this, this, this set of temples built on the cliff... He goes back out to camp, and from his new vantage point, he can see that there's a set of black temples even further into the ruins. And these are just so tantalizing that he can't help but stop what he's doing and head over in that direction. And weirdly, the sandstorm seems to be coming sort of from the direction of those temples. He doesn't really give any explanation to that yet. But uh, it does play a a larger role later on. But yes, these things, the sandstorms seem to ominously be coming from these black temples that seem less eroded than a lot of the other stuff in the area. So he heads over there and uh, he starts delving into those. And these are much deeper and more preserved inside too. Um, He finds just a tremendous amount of steps going down. Down and down and down. He says he goes down these steps for hours, wriggling on his stomach at times. And eventually his torch fails. And he's in complete darkness. But he's gone down so far. He just figures, I'm a scientist. I'm going to explore this place to hell with the fact that I can't see anything. And he keeps going. Personally, I think that's unbelievable. No no person in their right mind, even if they're a hell-bent scientist, is going to stop... It's not going to stop when their light source goes out. They're not going to continue on floundering in the blackness of an unknown space and think that they're going to get any kind of useful information out of it. I find that strains credibility, but we go with it. He continues on down the down the steps into the and in deeper into the, the temple. As he goes down, he experiences this kind of madness. He gets flashes of occult texts and texts in his brain like the necronomicon and we find that the narrator must be quite well versed in the occult and these forbidden places for him to have all this knowledge he starts running it through in his brain of all the stuff he's seen before and he begins chanting uh, other authors that he's read dunsany is mentioned Moore is mentioned and maybe you can write off his descent into this black you know realm as being a, a side effect of this madness but he's just going crazy and going down lower. He eventually finds a level floor. And kneeling in the dark, he feels around and he feels what he thinks are cases of glass on each side of this level passage. At first he thinks maybe they're coffins, but they're very smooth. And there seems to be tons of them in this passageway. And he continues on and eventually he sees what he describes as a soft luminescent sort of mist and light that fills the area. He looks around and he, he does see that he's in some sort of ornate passageway. And he's moving towards this light source. He describes it as magnificent. There are paintings. These cases on either side of them are made out of golden wood and glass. And then he describes what's what he can see through the glass in these cases. And they seem to be bodies of diminutive reptile people. Um, Lovecraft is famous for these composite descriptions. So he describes something to you sort of without actually describing something to you. So these things within the cases, he says, you know, simultaneously call to mind a cat, a bulldog, a satyr, and a human being, right? So he leaves it to your own imagination to kind of mush those together into something hideous. And, and for the most part, he does this effectively. I think that if he does it too much, there's some. sometimes he does it where it's kind of like impossible to mush them together. But in this situation, it seems pretty well done in my opinion. He can't believe that there are these weird beings in these cases. He just can't. He thinks they must be taxidermied composites of other dead creatures put together. And he doubts their authenticity completely. He still is un- under the assumption that this temple was built by humans. Another thing that I think, as a reader, we would be like, "Oh no, you're in a lizard temple, dude. What are you doing? Why? How could you possibly think that this is still a human temple, not a lizard temple?" but he does as 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 an author trying to show this sort of shift in ideology in scope in this cosmic horror thing." I think that what Lovecraft tries to do is he has, has his his protagonist so entrenched in the ideas of a you know human-centric universe that when something makes starts eating away at that belief his characters def- will ha- link, hang hang on with white knuckles onto that original idea until it reaches an ultimate breaking point. And it's the breaking point that I think Lovecraft is trying to really illustrate in this. Most of us as a reader are not so entrenched in that ideology, so we can see that breaking point coming. We would not react the same way, and so there's a disconnect there. Um, But I think that's one of the reasons why characters like this in his stories sort of hang on to that, that idea far longer than we would as a reader. Anyway, I digress. We'll continue on. There's evidence of a loss of skill as he's moving on. Um, This epic, you know, of history that's depicted in this artwork and carvings on the walls um, goes through several phases. There seems to be a golden age of knowledge and then a dipping down, back down into sort of a, a primitive stage and up again, so on and so forth. And towards the end, as he's making his way down towards the end of this tunnel, he even sees a human being depicted, which then he's described as being torn apart by... Uh, a group of those lizard people in the area. And I think this is really the point where the narrator sort of realizes, oh crap, this really isn't made by human beings. This is some sort of super ancient other race, intelligent race, that was on this planet. He then gets to the end of the hall and he sees what is described as a subterranean effulgence beyond a great doorway of brass. Now, He's doing everything he can to sort of grasp onto the fact that that maybe this temple was somehow still built by humans, um, but that idea is like cracking in his brain. He can't really comprehend this light that he's seeing. And then uh, there's this deep, low moaning sound and this rushing of wind coming up through that brass doorway. Um, It seems to be the return of that... Gusting wind and sandstorm that he saw outside, and uh, he knows that sunrise must be soon because the sandstorm is always um, just before dawn. He struggles against the wind, and uh, he almost like gets pulled through the back through the doorway from this this, this wind torrent all around him, um, and he looks back uh, at through the doorway and what he sees driving um you know just drives him mad you know he's he struggling against what he what Lovecraft refers to as the hellborn babble of the howling wind wraiths, and then um blacks out um he 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 knows that he was sort of screaming over and over again the couplet by Abdul Hazred that is not dead which can eternal lie and so on um he doesn't recall how he escaped. He knows that he must have ran back up all those stairs, crawled on his stomach through the darkness, all that again. Um, and he hears behind him, he, he recalls that he had heard behind him voices of, the, of these translucent, ghost-like lizard people uh, who, who are sort of tied up amongst the wind. Um, legions of them all, all racing behind him to get at him as he was fleeing out of the temple. Um... He, gets, he remembers getting up to the surface, running out the sand, just as the break of dawn comes up over the horizon, and it sort of slams that door shut, the wind stops, and he has escaped with his life. And that's the end of the story. What's the reception to this? Well, Lovecraft seemed to love this story, but publishing companies that he tried to sell it to did not. It was rejected by several outlets, including Weird Tales, which was his go-to periodical. Um, It was actually rejected by them twice. Uh, It was rejected by Fantasy Magazine and uh, The Galleon. So everywhere he'd normally pitch stuff, they turned it down. It was eventually accepted by the Fantasy Fan, which, unfortunately for Lovecraft, went out of business before it could publish the work. So eventually... Uh, It sat in a desk for a long time, and it ended up in the hands of readers no less than 14 years later in a periodical called Fanciful Tales. And it was only really published after many of his other works had been out there, and he had formed sort of a reader base, and he made a name for himself. And then that's why I think that the Fanciful Tales magazine eventually picked it up like a uh, a decade and a half later. Uh, Famous horror aficionado Lynn Carter... Uh, described The Nameless City as, quote, a trivial exercise in Poe-esque gothica, calling it overwritten and overdramatic. The mood of m- mounting horror is applied in a very artificial manner, Carter writes, rather than creating the re- in the reader a mood of terror, Lovecraft describes the mood of terror. You know, uh, <laughs> I think that's... Um, Uh, So true of his work Uh, Carter goes on to say that uh, The emotion is applied in adjectives He does however allow that The tale has some evocative power Going on to say that Lovecraft himself Was powerfully moved by an emotion Of awe and fascination When contemplating the mysterious ruins Of an unthinkable unthinkable antiquity This emotion he manages to convey In a sort of dreamlike manner Despite his coldly cynical use of adjectives I gotta agree with Carter. Lovecraft is infamous for going overboard with his adjective-laden purple prose, and Lovecraft is known to be quite stubborn, um, taking editorial advice seldomly. I wonder if this story would have made it into the hands of readers faster if he had attempted any kind of revision to it, but at least it showcases his often beloved and criticized quirks as a writer pretty well. Uh, I think that... Carter is absolutely correct when he he says that Lovecraft describes terror instead of instilling terror uh, with this particular story anyway. Um, But like like I said at the beginning, this story is is the beginning of what would later become known as the Cthulhu Mythos. And no pulp horror ideas can even come close to claiming that they have endured or as beloved as the Cthulhu Mythos. The combination of the era in which these stories take place combined with the sheer alien weirdness of the entities found within the tales, and the complete overturning of a human-centric mindset have captured the imaginations of hundreds, if not thousands, of creators since their inception. Board games, video games, countless novels and short stories continue to be churned out and devoured by a hungry public. The efforts made by August Derleth early on to preserve and continue to publish Lovecraft's work after his death as well as the other weird fiction authors like Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard, Robert Bloch, Ray Bradbury, Fritz Lieber, on and on and on, um, all worked to to sort of keep this world alive, and it created sort of a slow burn for this sort of thing. The decades that followed Lovecraft's death, the 40s through the 80s, saw a slow rise in the work's popularity, but it wasn't really until the more recent decades that that burn, that slow burn of this mythos, really turned into an explosion. I often wonder if it wasn't the greatest blessing for these concepts that they became regarded to be in the public domain. And if it wasn't for the stifling rules of copyright with other great ideas, um, if we'd have all sorts of other things uh, that writers and stuff could play with. But because Lovecraft is just sort of, sort of open source, you, it really was able to be grabbed on early and, uh, and run in all sorts of crazy great directions. Well, regardless of its poor reception, the Nameless City has made a name for itself uh, in the growing popularity of the mythos and is widely considered to be the first work um, in the loosely held together gravitational pull of the great tentacle old one, uh, the Cthulhu mythos in general. And you'll see it appear on many lists that offer the complete range of the original canon or the original, all the original stories that are part of this mythology. That's really where this story seems to continue to exist. It's best remembered for the components that are reused in more significant Lovecraft works, namely the Mad Arab and the couplet that I keep mentioning, um, as well as in a small way the lizard folk uh, that form the antagonists in the story. Uh, it's a reflection of the times it was written. It's a reflection of the man who wrote it, and remembered by its proximity to some of the most significant pulp horror fiction ever written, uh, comprising the Cthulhu Mythos. So. I think it's well worth your time to to read it. It's a pretty short read. Uh, highly recommended. And um, you know, even if you didn't read it when you listen to this podcast, uh, I'm not really spoiling much. It's still it's still a great great thing. The power of Lovecraft's work comes through in his writing itself, which I obviously can't do justice with my <laughs> with my little with my voice uh, on this little podcast. So it's definitely worth checking out. Hey. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the strange works of horror that have brought us to where we are today, I implore you, take a moment and rate or review the show. It'll help more people find out about it, and the more people we can get interested in this stuff, the better. And if you appreciate podcasts that are advertisement-free and you want to say thanks or make a recommendation for the show, feel free to email me at author at or click on the contact button on the website. Uh, links for both those thing, both, both of those things will be in the show notes. lastly if you want to stay up to speed on this or any of my other creative projects i am on twitter i tweet at tans 444 that's t-a-n-z 444 feel free to reach out i'd love to hear from you until next time thanks for joining